Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the IC Interviews. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Nick Kirridge and Simon Adler, managers of funds including Schroeder Global Recovery and Schroeder Recovery. Nick has long experience of investing via value-style investment approach via funds such as Schroeder Recovery, a UK equities fund with a strong performance record he's run since 2006. Simon has worked in investments since 2008 and joined the Schroeder's global value team in 2016. Nick, different investors take different approaches to value investing. So what is your definition of this and how do you apply it to the Schroeder Global Recovery and Schroeder Recovery Funds? I think there's, there's, two, there's two ways of, of talking about that. One is the kind of statistical answer and what, the geeky answer and one's the philosophical answer. So I'll give you both. The, the, the probably the as you say, it's a very broad church value investing. So the statistical answer is we probably define it as the cheapest twenty percent of the world. However, you whatever metric you want to use, so that could be a, a PE ratio, a price earnings ratio, or a price to book, or a dividend yield. It doesn't really matter. There's very high overlap between them all. We tend to prefer a kind of adjusted for the economic cycle type measure, a CAPE, but they all kind of head you in the right direction. But philosophically, what we think value investing is, is doing what others don't, won't, or can't, because it's psychologically too difficult to buy things that might make you look silly. Ultimately, that's all value investing is to us, is going where people are a bit scared, afraid, cautious, nervous, in some cases, angry, and looking there to see whether or not there are attractive bargains. Now, um, I think you mentioned in your um, fund literature that you, you aim to take advantage of behavioural biases, some of which you um, just hinted at. So, you know, specifically, which ones do you, um, you know, look to take advantage of and, and how do you do it? Well, I'll, I'll let Simon tell you how we do it. I'll tell you the ones we, I mean, the answer is any bias is fair game. At the At the end of the day, though, the bias that's probably most prevalent if you're a value investor that you're taking advantage of is probably the strongest bias in investing and that's loss aversion so what you know is that humans on average statistically it's all been measured feel a loss about twice as badly as they feel the joy of a game and as a result that means that as investors as, as humans we tend to be much more focused on avoiding losses than on making gains and what that means is when things become a bit hairy or a bit scary or becomes, we become a bit, life becomes a bit uncertain, we tend to sell first and ask questions later. And the more scary things are, the more quickly we sell, the more aggressively things get mispriced. And people tend not to say, what's that worth? They just tend to say, I don't want to be around that. And, and where those two things get confused, obviously, there is room for someone to step in. And if you can try and keep your head and be a bit rational and say, well, look, I, I'm not saying that everyone's crazy and there's nothing to be scared about here, but actually are there are things to be positive about here too. And and how much money might I make? Because could I, make, you know, could I put a little bit of my investors' money into this and potentially make them a lot of return? And that's kind of the the bias we're taking advantage of. How we do that? I'll probably let Simon have a go at that. Yeah, the, the other bias that's probably worth mentioning is recency bias. That human beings overweight the most recent evidence. And so people extrapolate what's happening today and, and can lose uh, lose attachment with history and with data. 
And by taking a longer term approach, we can often take advantage of that recency bias that humans have, which is the latest data point is the most important one. Um, in terms of how do we do it, we try and uh, root it in a dispassionate appraisal of both the risk of a share and the value of a share. And we assess what we think a company's worth, and we assess what we think the chances are of losing our client's capital in that investment. And we consistently do that. And over and over again, we don't think it's attractive. We say no, 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 over and over again. And then every now and again, we find the ruby in the rubble, the one with an asymmetric trade-off between upside and risk. And that's where we say yes. And we all need to say yes to think that's attractive in, in terms of the fund managers on the product. And at that point, that's when we try and make hay. So, I mean, how do you determine if, um, if a stock's good value? So what we try and do is assess what profits we think a company can make in a, in a kind of even keel type world. So uh, across an economic cycle. And we do a lot of analysis to try and do that. We assess history. We assess what changes are happening in the world. Uh, we assess what the competitors make. It's, it's a lot of deep and involved work to try and assess what profits we think the company can make in a normal type environment. We then assess what multiple we think that that is worth. Um, and that gives us a value. So about 100% of the time, I mean, what would be an example of, of when you got it wrong and what did you do about that particular stock? It's funny, you, 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 you do highlight, no, nobody gets right 100% of the time. I think one of the things that people miss about investing is that they think this is a, a, a job where, you know, you might get it right 90% of the time. And actually, the truth is, if you get it right 55% of the time, you're a complete genius. Um, it is unbelievable how close to a coin flip people are. And that places a lot of emphasis on process. Because you know, you'll make a judgment and you'll frequently be right and you'll frequently be wrong, but you've got to be a bit more right than you're wrong. And when you are right, you've got to make a bit more money. And it is literally that. And it places huge emphasis on repeatability, on doing it every time. You can't afford to have a good day or a bad day. You've just got to have the same day over and over and over to grind out results. And so we talk a lot about the process behind that. I think you said something else there, which is really interesting which was about, you know, where you make mistakes and what you learn from them. I think one of the, that's obviously an important part of the job. But one of the things about knowing that you've got to be right 55% of the time and understanding that there are so many variables going on here is, is understanding that sometimes you'll make a lot of money and it was a mistake. You should never, ever do that again, because if you did it 100 times, you would lose money for your clients on average, but you just happen to have made money this time. Equally, there are other times where you lost all your clients' money. And when they say, what did you learn? The answer should be, I would do that again every time. Because 70 times out of 100, if I did that same thing, I would make money. And this is one of the 30. And it's not never do it again. It's do it again every time. And we have a process where we write up what we're doing every time we look at a company, not just when we buy it, not just when we sell it, when we look at it, we write, what do we think it's worth? What do we think the risks are? When would we buy it if we wouldn't buy it today? And then we go back and we look at all those judgments, not just the ones where we bought the stock or sold the stock or where it went to zero or it went up a long way. 
but we look at all the calls we made, these emails back five years ago, and we say, well, were we any good at this? Were we any good at working out the profits the business would make? Did we have any idea of the risk? Did any of those risks come true? When we said it was worth 15 times PE, was that right? Did that ever happen? And we try and learn from every judgment we make and see whether or not there are areas where we're better or worse. You know, are we better at doing this with more stable businesses? We're bad at doing it with businesses in structural transition, like oil businesses or high street retailers. Are we better at doing it in certain countries than others? Are we better in developed markets than emerging markets? Are we better at forecasting sales or profit margins? And just what we're trying to do here is we're trying to get a process where as we learn, we don't learn the wrong things. It's very easy in investing to learn the wrong things. So we learn from everything and we try and learn the right things. And we nudge ourselves from 55% right to 56 to 57. Because if we can do that, that's people retiring five years earlier after 25 years with us. So we're very focused on that. And it's not just about any one individual stock. It's about all of the decisions we make. And we look at them all, I guess. Okay, I mean, what would be an example of where it didn't go right? Um, and, you know, what what was your, you know, how did you go about dealing with it? Yeah, so so one which uh, we could talk about, which we got wrong, is Debnams. So we invested in Debnams, and we, you know, probably uh, misunderstood two issues. One is the structural threat and the, the weakness of the business itself in terms of its stakeholder management and in terms of, the quality of the franchise, and secondly, the, the weakness of the balance sheet because of the long lease liability. So we knew it was up against it. We, we knew it was high risk. The upside was very, very considerable. So we thought that trade-off was worth taking for our clients, but it turned out to probably be a genuine mistake because the liabilities were greater than we thought and the structural threat and the weakness of the business were worse than we thought. So that's an example of a mistake we've made. We've tried to learn the lesson. And um, when we look at retailers now, we look you know, with a very critical eye at the length of lease liabilities. We look at a very critical eye at the balance between the uh, structural threat to the business and the balance sheet of the business. Can this survive and can it uh, adjust and adapt with time? So, you know, that's one where we made a mistake. But what is critical for us is if you make a mistake with a 2% position to learn the lesson for the 98% or the 100% of your portfolio tomorrow. And that's what we want to try and do when we make mistakes, as, as Nick's alluded to. Has your investment process changed in any way as a result of the unprecedented economic and market conditions of the past year and a half? I mean, we did a, a drains up review of our process last summer because we were quite keen to think about some of the factors that people were kind of throwing at value investing more broadly. You know, you, you'll have heard of many of these, but things like is screening for businesses based on their book value defunct in a world where intangibles and software are so prevalent and important is you know, looking at deeply discounted businesses, the wrong way to go about it in a world where structural change is meaning that businesses like oil and gas companies have stranded assets and are defunct and so on and so forth. And what we wanted to make sure is that we weren't sticking our head in the sand and just simply saying, no, no, you know, like commute against the waves, it'll come right one day. I think off the back of that work, what we did is, you know, we reassured ourselves that a lot of what we had in place was, in fact, 
you know, very, very robust. For example, one of the ways we screen the world is based on cyclically adjusted profits, not on book values, because we believe it's about profitability and really actually cash flow profits. But one of our key investigations is whether profits turn into cash. So we felt that we, you know, we had encompassed that well. On factors like ESG, we felt perhaps we were encompassing that less well, and we needed to look more deeply at some of the structural change that was going on, particularly with assets like many businesses have a mix of assets, but assets like coal assets, thermal coal assets, where we felt the shift was going to be more profound and more speedy than we had previously thought. And we reassured ourselves actually with some of the companies like oil and gas assets that actually many of these businesses would be producing for quite some years and that actually we as shareholders and stakeholders should be part of the change, edging them towards renewables and being part of that rather than running away at the moment where perhaps they want the most guidance and they need the most support and they have attractive shareholder returns. So we investigated a number of things. We looked externally and we looked internally and looked a bit at our own culture. You know, did we have a culture where we were able to ask these difficult questions or was challenged in this kind of way, frowned upon, you know, and worked at making sure we have that. So we went, it was quite a deep review. Off the back of that, though, what I would say is there's probably 85 or 90% of our philosophy and our approach remained identical. And that was very important because it meant that actually, as we went into a period that was much more positive for our style, we saw an enormous bounce from you know the Pfizer Monday and the the end of the last year and this year. And you know, sometimes people say, what is it you did differently? And the answer quite often is nothing at all. We stuck to our guns, we stuck to our knitting. You've got to change because the market changed, but it's evolution, not revolution. And I think having a core philosophy, come back to this repeatability. If you don't have repeatability, then you just get pushed here and there with the prevailing wind and you never actually chart a course. So I think we've tried to chart a course that has meant that we're open to new ideas, open to challenge and change, but equally the core philosophy that's led to many of these products being successful over, you know, in the case of our UK recovery fund, 50 years now, has remained intact. Turning to the funds, um, they've outperformed over the past 12 months and year-to-date in 2021. What in particular has driven this it's, it's been about this conviction to stick to our guns, about remaining with value throughout the dark time. And so it's been very wide ranging across portfolios as to what's driven the outperformance. It's been some banks, some energy, some cyclical companies, but also companies like a Royal Mail or companies like... Um, you know, some of the, the out-of-favour businesses around the world. It's been very broad spread across portfolios, and it's a result of having the, um, the conviction and the willingness to, to stand against the crowd, to stick to our guns, to do what we think is the right thing to do with the support of Schroeder's and our fantastic clients. And with that, we've been able to, to stick to it, and then when, when the sun shines, we've made hay. Royal, Royal Mail is actually a great example because it's a business where not only have you had a structural, a, a cyclical downturn because of COVID with letters falling off a cliff, but you've had a, 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 a kind of a structural concern that ultimately email and electronics will mean that we, we're not going to be using letters. And that's exactly right. And as a result of these things, people have been running a mile from that share. Um, you know, last year it was had some very dark days. 
But, you know, asking what if and looking a bit at that business, there are a couple of things within there. I mean, the first is it's also exposed to one of the most positive and growth trends that you can get in the UK, which is, I don't know about you, but I've had to, we've moved house and I've recently, I have um, secured a small room, near the nearest room to the front door as my office, because frankly, being any further from the front door is crazy when the Amazon man is coming seven times a day. So, you know, a lot of these deliveries are coming via Royal Mail and have one of the preeminent franchises in the UK with Parcel Force. They're growing 30% a year. I think the other thing is people looking at it and saying, you know, some businesses, and, and we kind of recognize this, is don't waste a good crisis, particularly businesses that have been around a long time. The only time you can genuinely push through meaningful change is when people actually think you are having a moment where things could end permanently. And that allows people to make real, you know, real structural long-term improvements. And a business like Royal Mail is heavily unionized that obviously has to change because its business model is changing. They've been able to push that through. And, and the rebound has been much more rapid than we thought. So it's, you know, a, a nice, easy example to show. But it's essentially what we're trying to do with most businesses. Is say, could things be much different in five years' time? And if we're willing to look further than five months away, but instead five years away, will we get paid for being patient on behalf of our investors? And in a market increasingly that long-term view, there's a bit of an arbitrage to be made there if you can be long-term. You know, Royal Mail has so many elements of the kinds of businesses we're looking for. Turning to last year, funds lagged quite badly. Um, and just looking back at Shorty Global Recovery's record, um, it didn't do so well, for example, in 2017, 2018 and 2019. What yeah. were the reasons for this, in particular last year? It's quite difficult because a lot of the things that are the reasons that we have good years the following year are the reasons that were bad the year before. So come back to this, things are swinging around. Actually, if you were to look at the turnover of these funds, whether it's global recovery or UK recovery or our European recovery fund, they all tend to be somewhere between 20 and 35%. So we're holding stocks for somewhere between three and five years. So we're not moving things around hugely in portfolios. And what we're looking to try and do is over the long term ensure that these performance swings, which we're not targeting, we'd rather avoid, but they net out, come back to being a bit more, we get it a bit more right than we get it wrong. And we get it right a bit better than we do when we get it wrong. And we're looking to net out at somewhere around 2 or 3% after our fees per annum of our performance over the long term, which we think would be, you know, that would do very well by our investors if we can get that. And that's our long term track record on our, on our UK products. In what kinds of market conditions does your investment approach tend to outperform? And in what kind of market conditions does it underperform? It would, it would be lovely if we could, <laughs> to be honest with you, it would be wonderful if we could identify that, that cleanly because I would know when to go and sit at home in a dark room with a television on and not go anywhere near a Bloomberg screen. And then other times I would come to work and make money for the clients. But unfortunately, I mean, if I were to be generalistic about this, there are some things you can say. You can tend to say that value investing, which tends to be focused on cheaper businesses and is more rooted in a kind of very rational, non-party-like type investment philosophy, tends to do less well in more bubbly or ebullient or you know tail end of a bull market type conditions. And that's very much what we saw at the end of, kind of 2019, beginning of 2020, where you know, the party really was in full flow prior to COVID. And things were very, very challenged. 
it also tends to, you know, in a world where everything's falling, it doesn't always, to begin with, in the initial stages of a downturn, you know, people tend to say, I want the better businesses, and they worry about the cheaper businesses. What tends to happen, though, is, is that as downturns kind of continue to go on, people kind of say, but hang on, my, my risk here is actually to, to having paid too much for stuff where suddenly I thought I was certain they would grow and it looked fantastic. Now I'm not really sure. The world seems very different. And value investments can often be a bit boring, a bit more long term and, and a lot cheaper. And people tend to value that. Now, I've kind of given you a broad profile it's not quite that mechanical, frankly. And I could give you many exceptions where it didn't work out quite like that. Um, make it very difficult. And that's why, frankly, if you're a value investor, the way to do this, we think, is we're a value investor today, tomorrow, five years ago, five years from now. We don't change our spots. We don't second guess. We, we understand what we're bad at, which is market timing. And so we do. fund managers quite often you focus on what you're good at and you try and do that. Quite often, you don't admit what you're bad at. We like to admit what we're bad at and try not to do that as much as do the things we're good at. I'd make an extra point, which is if you put 10 grand into value and 10 grand into growth in 1926, almost 100 years ago, the growth today would be worth a whopping $80 million. Hugely exciting number. The value would be worth $780 million, almost 10 times as much. So that what we take from that is actually value has delivered outstanding long-term returns for clients that have bought it and patiently waited. And so we interpret that as value definitely has some tough patches. We don't deny that. We would love to know when the good times are going to be and when the bad times will be. But for those that can look through the timing and look through trying to recognize it will be now or it will be later, have hugely benefited from having a long-term holding in value. And that's what we do with our own money. And that's what we'd encourage other people to do as well. Okay. Um, looking at the fund's asset allocation, um, Schroeder Global Recovery is very overweight financials um, at the moment. And it's also the largest sector exposure in Schroeder Recovery, the UK fund. Mm. Why financials? So, so we, we think banks are, are very attractive in Europe. And, and that's reflected in the UK fund and the global fund. Um, banks are, are unbelievably interesting. Today, at a time where interest rates are very low, the yield curve is very flat, and people say it's incredibly hard for banks to make money. At the moment, they're making very good levels of pre-provision profits, despite those features. If interest rates ever rise, the, uh, the impact of that will be very, very considerable on banks' bottom lines. You know, one Global Bank CEO told us recently that it would a 100 basis point move in interest rates would increase their profits by 30 percent, three zero percent. So, profit banks are, are attractively profitable today, and will be dramatically more so if interest rates ever rise. Even at today's level of profit, the valuations we think are very attractive. You know, paying significant discounts for tangible book value. PEs of five, six, seven times, dividend yields of five, six, seven percent. And that's despite not assuming anything particularly for interest rates. And there's a critical second point, which is suddenly the way people bank has changed. My dad's going to be 80 this year, and he's finally stopped writing his letters to the manager at Lloyd's Bank Norwich because he's developed online banking. 
And that gives huge opportunities for cost-cutting for banks, as we've seen in Scandinavia. So the opportunity for profit growth from both interest rates and from cost-cutting, we think is very significant for banks. And critically, you're paying nothing for that. You're paying a very attractive price on today's banking profits, which aren't hugely uh, exciting, but are still very cheap. And then the, the second part of the equation, that's the reward side, as we talked about at the beginning. The risk side is they've got the highest levels of capital they've had for a generation, probably. They have been reducing risk for 10 years. But ever since the financial crisis, they've been retrenching into their core markets, retrenching into their best bits of business, reducing the levels of risk they're taking. And then the final part is they were the cause of the crisis in 2007-8. And they've had a very, very tough decade dealing with the consequences of that politically, conduct fees and reputationally. This time, they've been part of the solution to the crisis with moratoria, with loans being delivered extremely quickly into the economy. And we think that may create a uh, a change in attitude towards banks. So you've got a very attractive combination with uh, attractive valuation, opportunity for profit growth that's not being paid for, risk is low compared to history, and there's an opportunity for a change in perception on banks. And that's why it's an important part of our, our portfolios, but it doesn't dominate the portfolios as well. I think it's important to note. Your ability to get Norwich into almost any conversation is quite remarkable. It's because it's necessary for any good conversation. What you'll come to, Lenora, what you'll come to know about Simon is he, he loves two things, sailing and Norwich. Yeah, I've, I've got a cup of tea with we've just been promoted on in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> just just turn, turn, turning back to the financial story, uh, what would be, um, say, like a couple of examples of financials the funds are holding at the moment that, you know, perhaps exemplify well what, what you just been saying about, you know, banks offering, you know, a lot to investors. Something like a Barclays, which is quite wild, widely held, is a franchise which, for a long time, that's been a bit of a black sheep. It's one that didn't have quite as good a balance sheet as anyone, everyone else, hadn't had quite as good a downturn, you know, had doubled down on investment banking at just the wrong time, had this European franchise that nobody really wanted, had sold that laid the golden egg with its iShares business, you know, to BlackRock, who have then gone on to make an amazing success of it. So all of these things and traded an evaluation that kind of reflected that, to be honest with you. But now suddenly people are looking at it and the benefits of having a diversified business model. We've gone back to having a bit of an M&A boom for the first time in many years. Barclays banking benefiting from that very strongly. Finance directors are very sensible heads. Um, you know, they've got much better levels of capital now. Having, you know, they've had to miss one year's worth of dividend as many banks have, which has been painful for our shareholders. But they've now got very strong, some of the highest levels of capital they've had for decades and decades. We're in a business where we're buying, you know, again, come back to this. What will they look like in six? We don't know. But if you're willing to look five years out, what do we think? We think interest rates could be modestly higher, modestly. But that Simon said, radically positive for the uh, return to the business. Even if they're not, banks tend to be oligopolies. There's four or five banks that control all the mortgages and current accounts in local markets, even in developed markets. And they all, the barriers to entry are very high. It's quite hard to recreate a bank. Even if you're going to do a fintech, we've seen how difficult that is. So there are attractions 
banks that we think people are overlooked. You know, people are looking at the headwinds and we don't ignore those. We're not saying they don't exist, but we are saying, do you know anyone who's changed bank account in the last 30 years? I mean, very few. So when we look at some of the attractions, we think paying a very low price for something with a very, very good looking balance sheet, with a decent dividend yield, with a very low price that's been around for 200 years in many cases, and we think will be around in five years time. We, we like that. That seems like a good starting point. You know, it's hard to lose money from there. And there are many more ways to make money. And that's a, you know, a, those kind of heads you win, tails you don't lose too much. That's the basis of a good 55-45 portfolio. What I'll move on to is shoulder recovery, because, um, yeah, what I noticed here was the funds relative to, uh, as we brought in, is, is overweight energy stocks. So I wondered what's the reason for that and uh, what would be a particular example of a holding that exemplifies that? Having talked about us investing in stocks where, you know, others don't, won't or can't mm. uh, or where people are fearful, Energy is slightly in the eye of the storm there, isn't it, really? You know, you've, you've got the cyclical downturn because of COVID and less transport and the oil price collapse. And you've got the structural downturn of people being concerned that, you know, everybody is setting a target to be carbon neutral within X years. And that must have an impact. I think we think a couple of things from that. The first is, is that it doesn't matter which of our holdings you look at, whether or not it's um, you know, BP, Shell, ENI, or across the global funds, you know, the repsoles of this world. The truth is, it's, it's not that they don't understand what's going on. They get it. And there is a profound structural shift going on in these businesses in terms of where they allocate capital. We also think that many of these businesses are some of the best placed businesses to actually do what like, offshore business for is something that has a lot of similarities with offshore oil. You know, harsh environment, logistic operations, huge projects, lots of equipment and industrial complex, you know, supply chains. They're well-placed to do that, to pivot. It's not going to be easy, but they're well-placed to do that. And then thirdly, we think that the core businesses here, we will need oil. Whether or not you think that we're going to accelerate even further, we hope we will, the truth is oil will still not peak for a couple of years. And so there will be a return to be made as we transition, not like um, CD retail, where overnight we're going to go from nobody using a CD to streaming everything, or even the declining for a period of time. And that will give these businesses time to generate the cash to reinvest in the more attractive parts of their business potentially. Finally, actually, when we look at these businesses, we think that many of them are pretty conservatively financed. They understand they have to pay their investors to wait. This isn't an overnight transition. So there's a very, very reasonable income stream. Of Dividend yields in excess of five in many cases. And finally, to Simon's point, just don't bet the whole portfolio on it. I, I, I'd kind of pull you up a little bit, Lenore, on something you said, which is overweight, and I understand why you would say that. We tend not to think versus benchmark mm. because we worry that when you compare positions versus benchmark, what you're kind of saying is the benchmark is safety. And I've seen so many examples in my lifetime of it not being safe. It's just a bit So what we tend to try and think about is absolute terms, how much of our own money would we put in any one sector or stock? 
So as we go to 10% in a sector, we start to think, okay, that's quite a lot. And we would probably cap, we, we have super sector cap 35%. So oil, all of energy, including oil and gas, including all commodities. But we tend to look at things and say anywhere between 10 and 15% is a lot. And we would be careful about that. I said, what would we do with our own money? To make that right, we invest a lot of our own money in our products because we think that's exactly right. We should be alongside our clients. Thank you, Nick and Simon. A really interesting... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Insight into how you approach value investing and helpful update on the funds.